0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Fireside Thoughts, where I wrestle with controversial yet important questions and explain why I don't think the answers are so black and white. I also provide my own perspective on these topics based on in-depth research and reasoning and open the floor to any counterpoints people may provide. So this is part two of a two-part episode on universal healthcare. In part one, I talked about the problems with our current healthcare system and provided points in support and in opposition to universal healthcare. That information will be absolutely critical to understanding part two, so if you haven't listened to part one yet, I highly recommend that you do so. Today, I'm going to focus entirely on finding a solution to the very complicated problems presented in the first part of episode five. To recap, I concluded that the high cost of healthcare in America makes providing health insurance to everyone both more necessary and more impossibly expensive. And because of that paradox, I think it's unhelpful to view universal healthcare as a black and white issue. Instead of asking, should we implement universal healthcare, I think a better question to ask is this. What system would allow us to provide the maximum number of people with health insurance, at the lowest cost? Without affecting the quality of healthcare. But before we talk about giving more people health insurance, there are a few things that have to happen first. One important component of universal healthcare that I didn't mention in part one is everyone physically being able to access the healthcare system. This is the less controversial aspect of universal healthcare that unfortunately doesn't get addressed very often. I think everyone can agree that there should be as few physical barriers to getting healthcare as possible. And when I say physical barriers, I mean factors like geography. A person living in rural Mississippi should still have a hospital a reasonable distance away in the case of an emergency. But according to the US Department of Health and Human Services, there are 5703 areas in the United States that have been formally designated as having a primary care health professional shortage. Those areas contain 54.5 million people that would need another 15,168 health practitioners to meet their primary healthcare needs. Okay, no one thinks that's a good thing. Fixing that problem is something that I think both political parties can cooperate on. If someone lives in one of those areas, they're going to have a hard time finding a doctor, whether they have insurance or not. I think the first step to repairing our healthcare system is to offer incentives for physicians to work in areas that have healthcare provider shortages. Another thing that has to happen before trying to give more people health insurance is an emphasis on preventative treatment. As I mentioned in part one, the United States has one of the highest rates of hospitalizations from preventable causes out of any rich developed country, and that increases healthcare cost by a lot. Solving this issue is much more complicated and is one of the foundations of the public health field. So more support for organizations that seek to prevent people from needing expensive health care would go a long way to reducing the cost of providing health insurance to more people. And when those problems are fixed, we can finally start to think about how to get health insurance to as many people as possible at the lowest cost. People on the left propose that we do this through universal health care, so let's investigate that as a possible solution. We first need to understand that universal healthcare is not a healthcare system in itself, but rather a category of healthcare systems. An article by The Balance laid out three different types of healthcare models that all fall under universal healthcare. The first is called the beverage model, which is a single-payer, single-provider system. Under this model, you would not only be covered by government health insurance, but you would also go to government-owned hospitals and see government-employed physicians. The essence of a single payer, single provider system is that there is only one entity paying for and providing healthcare. The government. This is actually how the US Department of Veterans Affairs runs their healthcare system. Now, there are a couple of benefits that come with this model. First, it accomplishes two of our goals. It provides health insurance to everyone, and it lowers the cost of healthcare. Because the government has complete control over the healthcare system, they can also control costs. So that sounds like a really good deal, right? not quite remember that there was a third goal we had as well which was to keep the quality of healthcare high but because the government would have control over the entire healthcare system that also means they would have control over which medical procedures you could or could not get if a medical service became too costly for the government they could just stop providing it and you wouldn't be able to simply go to another hospital because all hospitals would be government-owned Also, in the case of a crisis like a war or, I don't know, a global pandemic, the entire healthcare system would be drastically impacted as the government starts to lose money. If there's a government shutdown, doctors and nurses would just stop getting paid. I think of all the universal healthcare models, the beverage model is probably the most idealistic and the least realistic for America. Unfortunately, the government of the United States often disagrees on how to budget their money, and so it often comes to a standstill, and we can't afford to have that happen with our healthcare system. So perhaps we need a model where the government has control over health insurance, but not the entire healthcare system. And that's actually something that exists. It's called the National Health Insurance Model, where healthcare is paid for by the government, but hospitals and doctors remain private. This is a single-payer, multiple-provider plan. This is the category that the policy known as Medicare for All falls into. The upside to this model is that in the case of a national crisis or a government shutdown, the healthcare system would stay operational. Additionally, people would have access to a much wider variety of healthcare services since the government wouldn't be trying to cut costs. But that raises other problems. If the government isn't trying to cut costs, then the costs will remain high. That means that even though there would be many healthcare options available, the number of options that would actually be covered by government insurance would be limited. Recently proposed legislation by the Biden administration attempts to fix this problem by giving citizens the option to keep their private health insurance while still offering government coverage to anyone who wants it. This is sometimes referred to as a two-tiered model, but in reality, it's just the national health insurance model with a twist. It sounds like a great idea though, right? Everyone gets basic coverage, but if someone wants more healthcare options available to them, they can choose private health insurance. Is there a problem with that? Yes. The United Kingdom uses this two-tiered model, and according to the Commonwealth Fund, only 10.5% of citizens voluntarily choose private coverage, many of whom receive it through employers. It's important to look at the opportunity cost of the two-tiered system. Let's say you're faced with the decision of keeping your private insurance or switching to Medicare for All. If you switch to Medicare for All, you've got a pretty decent coverage. It may not be excellent, but it's good enough. On the other hand, if you keep your private insurance, you not only have to continue paying elevated taxes for something you don't even remotely benefit from, you also now have to pay premiums for private insurance. So unless you're extremely rich, why on earth would you choose private insurance? We end up with the majority of the population choosing government insurance and the same exact problems as before with the national health insurance model. In fact, any system that relies on the government to provide insurance comes with a huge downside. These models are all funded by general tax dollars, which the government can do whatever they want with. If they want to spend that money on the military, they can do that. If they want to spend that money on building roads, they can do that. Nothing is forcing them to use that money for healthcare. that leaves us with the third system, which is called the social health insurance model. And the social health insurance model is a multiple payer, multiple provider system. This is the model that's been implemented in Germany and it actually works really well. It is very complicated though. So bear with me as I try to explain it as simply as possible. So Germany has a system of nonprofit insurance companies called sickness funds, which are funded by payroll contributions from both employees and employers. of every employee's paycheck, which is matched by the employer, goes towards a pool of money which the government distributes to different sickness funds based on need. Each sickness fund also charges its own additional premium, but it's proportional to a person's income and isn't affected by past medical complications. For people living below the poverty line or for those who are unemployed, the government pays on behalf of the individual. The sickness funds still compete heavily for members, resulting in each one offering a different set of benefits or lower premiums. Everyone making under around $60,000 a year is required to use this system called statutory health insurance, or SHI for short. People making more than $60,000 a year can opt out of SHI in favor of switching to private health insurance, or PHI. After switching to PHI, they no longer have to pay that 7.5% of their paycheck. There are a lot of benefits to the system for one individuals get to choose the sickness fund that's best for them and the sickness funds can't turn them away. Sickness funds also hold a lot of negotiating power when it comes to medical expenses and can use that power to lower the cost of medical care. Sure, private insurance companies do hold a lot of negotiating power in America, but they also have the side goal of maximizing profits. The health system tracker found that private health insurance companies doubled the average deductibles for patients between 2007 and 2017, which greatly increased the financial burden on patients while decreasing the financial burden on the insurance companies. The reason why sickness funds are more capable of lowering healthcare costs is because they are nonprofit organizations and aren't concerned with making as much money as they can. Their only motivation is to provide the best quality care to their patients at the lowest cost. In Germany, citizens don't have to pay that much more in taxes, and overall, the country spends only 11.2% of their GDP on healthcare, compared to the U.S.'s 17.7%, according to the Commonwealth Fund. And the citizens love it too. According to OECD, 85% of German citizens reported being satisfied with their healthcare system, when compared with the 3 in 4 Americans who said their healthcare system was in a state of crisis. Unfortunately, while I believe that the social health insurance model is excellent and probably one of the best ones I've read about, I also think it's not realistic for the United States. Sure, it's worked for Germany, but America has a few key differences that make the system impractical for us to implement. In general, actually, I think these differences make it very difficult to implement most of the systems that work for other countries. First, under almost every universal healthcare model, the government would have to require all citizens to obtain healthcare, and this is a very contentious point among Republicans who believe in the preservation of one's own ability to make decisions for themselves. On this subject, that's actually a really solid reason to oppose universal healthcare. National Federation of Independent Business v. Sibelius was a Supreme Court case that challenged the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, which required all citizens to get health insurance. The court ruled that it was constitutional for the government to offer incentives for getting health insurance or to impose a tax on those who refused, which is what the ACA ended up doing. However, the court made it clear that it was unconstitutional for the government to require or mandate health insurance. I'll quote Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote the majority opinion. Congress addressed the insurance problem by ordering everyone to buy insurance. Under the government's theory, Congress could address the diet problem by ordering everyone to buy vegetables. People, for reasons of their own, often fail to do things that would be good for them or good for society. Those failures, joined with the similar failures of others, can readily have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. Under the government's logic, that authorizes Congress to use its commerce power to compel citizens to act as the government would have them act. This is not the country the framers of our Constitution envisioned. So already, that rules out the majority of universal healthcare models. Even if the government were to offer incentives or impose penalties, it wouldn't guarantee 100% coverage. Another system that has been in place for generations in America is companies offering private health insurance to employees. This makes them more appealing options for people looking for employment, and in some cases, employees pay no premiums because their company covers it. This has never really been the case in Germany, allowing them to implement the social health insurance model more easily. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, around 49% of employees nationwide in the US receive at least some private health coverage from their employers. That's over 150 million people who get private health insurance from their employers, That's a huge reason why plans such as Medicare for all have become increasingly unpopular even among Democrats. The relationship between employer, employee, and private health insurance companies is really delicate and a largely beneficial one and not one that I think should be touched. So what can we do? None of the three universal healthcare systems are really going to work as we've already discussed. And this is the reality of the situation. If we're looking for a simple solution, or if we're just looking to other countries to see if any of their solutions work for us, we aren't going to find one. Now, I don't usually do this, but uh, when I was listening back to my episode, this is where my eyes started to glaze over, which is not a good place for my eyes to start glazing over. So um, I know I just threw a lot of information at you. So if you need time to process it, or if you're feeling overwhelmed by it, now is a really good time to take a break, because next I'll be focusing on what I think is the best solution to this problem, and that's probably the most important part of this episode. So, if you want to take a break, go ahead and do so. I'll resume in 3, 2, 1. Upon arriving in office, President Bill Clinton set up a task force on national healthcare reform, an area he was extremely passionate about. This task force was headed by First Lady Hillary Clinton, and included over a dozen experts. Together, they compiled the best information they had, putting aside political differences and relentlessly searching for a solution to the age-old issue of health care. After nearly a year, the committee had finally decided on a solution, taking the form of a 1,369-page document. And yet, it was quickly shot down by people across the political spectrum for a variety of reasons. Why am I telling you this? Because I am not an expert, and I don't want to be held to the same standards as one. Even the experts can't figure out a good solution to this problem, so it would be silly for me to think that my solution hasn't already been thought of somewhere and shot down. But this podcast is a place where I can express my opinion on the matter, and that's what I'm going to do. So feel free to poke holes in my proposal. In fact, please do, and send them to me so I can cover them in a follow-up. But don't be like, wow, Jordan, why isn't your solution perfect? This episode is a piece of trash. Please, please don't do that. Anyway, let's explore what I'm calling the semi-social health insurance model. First, there are a couple of things about our existing system that I want to preserve. I'm not going to touch Medicare, the VA health care system, the ability of employers to offer private health insurance or private health care that's funded by the government in part because of labor unions. Those systems are well-established, and I think it's unreasonable to try and change any of them, so this plan will neither positively nor negatively impact them. So, how do we get health insurance to employees who don't already have private coverage from their companies? I think we can look to Germany's model for ideas. Let's begin with the central aspect of it, which is the establishment of multiple competing nonprofit sickness funds. Now let's pretend I'm an employee who has just gotten hired at a company that doesn't give me private insurance. Under this system, 7.5% of my income, an amount that's matched by my company, automatically goes towards a general pool of money which is overseen by the government, and is then distributed to all sickness funds depending on their respective financial need. I, as an individual, then select the sickness fund that I find most beneficial for me, and I pay an additional percentage of my income, maybe 1 or 2%, directly towards that organization. The sickness funds aren't allowed to reject my claim, and the premiums I pay are based on my income and aren't affected by past medical complications. And just like that, me and my children are insured. What if I want to switch to private insurance? That's totally fine. I no longer have to pay the 7.5% of my paycheck towards the sickness fund. And that's great if I'm making millions of dollars a year, because at that point, I'm paying more for my sickness fund than I would for private insurance. Sure, the healthcare I'm getting from my sickness fund is good enough, but it's not as comfortable or convenient as healthcare under private insurance. Plus, my private insurance plan might cover more procedures or prescription medications. Now what if i decide that i don't want health insurance well america's a free country so although it's not recommended i can choose to take that risk once again i no longer have to pay 7.5 percent of my paycheck towards a sickness fund but if i get into a freak car accident and need surgery i won't have coverage and will have to pay completely out of pocket remember how i said that my company would match my 7.5 percent contribution towards the sickness funds Well, regardless of whether I choose to pay towards a sickness fund or not, my company will continue to pay that half of the contribution, because that's what they've agreed to do in exchange for some nice tax cuts from the government. That way, the sickness funds can keep running, even if more people like me decide to switch to private or opt out of health insurance. Also, companies that refuse to contribute will not only have to pay regular amounts of taxes, but will also be less appealing options for those looking for jobs. Unless, of course, they offer private health insurance, which is even better. Let's say I just lost my job, or that I'm living in poverty, where's my health insurance now? Well, for as long as I'm unemployed, or I'm below the poverty line, the government will make contributions on my behalf. It would be a system similar to Medicaid, but the government would pay the sickness funds and not the providers themselves. Taxes probably wouldn't increase since this system would just replace Medicaid. Wait, 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 Jordan, if you can choose not to have healthcare, doesn't that mean this isn't universal healthcare? Well, technically that is correct. People who opt out just because they don't want it won't be covered by this system. But the reality is that very few people opt out of health insurance because they don't need or want it. Data from the Kaiser Family Foundation shows that 73.7% of the uninsured who are non-elderly cite the lack of affordable options as their primary reason for not having health insurance, while only 21.3% say it's because they don't need or want it. Putting that number together with the relatively low number of uninsured people in America, that's around 2 or 3% of the population. Whether a person is making minimum wage or a six-figure salary, they would still pay 7.5% of their paycheck towards health insurance, making it affordable for everyone. There would be no financial excuse for not having health insurance. But for those who still choose not to opt in simply because they don't want to? Well, then I think that's their responsibility to deal with the consequences, and that's part of what it means to live in a free country. Now, you're probably thinking, geez, Jordan, this is complicated, and you would be right. Usually, I try to find the most straightforward solution, but with some topics like these, I'm unable to find a simple answer. Oftentimes, complicated problems require complicated solutions, and America's current healthcare system is full of complicated problems. By no means would this solution be plausible within the next couple of years. Heck, it may take decades to implement, but I still believe that it's the best option we have. Just like liberals, I want everyone to be able to get the healthcare they need without it being an extreme financial burden. And just like conservatives, I want to make the healthcare system as cost-effective as possible for your everyday taxpayers. Right now, America does neither of those things. We can't avoid change, but we also can't rush it. The problem won't be solved with a huge spending bill or a single executive order. We need to take baby steps. Man, what a topic Universal Healthcare is. The number of times I've come up with solutions only to find dozens of holes in them that sent me right back to the drawing board is kind of crazy. But it was worth it because I've learned a lot in these past few weeks. And I hope you've learned something too. The more people that listen to this podcast, the more valuable my efforts become, so please make sure to share this podcast if you enjoyed it, it really helps me out a ton. Please send me a DM or email me at firesidethoughtspodcast at gmail.com with any feedback or counterpoints, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. I'll also send you my source document if you request it. As per usual, I'll compile the best responses from both this part and the last part in a follow-up episode. Fireside Thoughts is available on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and multiple other platforms, the links to which can be found on my Instagram page, which is just Jordan's Podcast, which is also where I post updates and occasionally polls. And with that, thank you all for listening, and I'll see you all in the next one. Goodbye!